Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. Phil Cunliffe is a senior lecturer at the University of Kent and the author of most recently Cosmopolitan Dystopia, The New 20 Years Crisis, and co-author of The End of the End of History, just out from Zero Books, which we will be talking about today. So thanks for coming on, Phil. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, it's it's a real pleasure. Um, I've been a fan of um, Phil's podcast, along with co-hosts Alex Hokuli and George Hoare, Afe Bunga Bunga, for a number of years now. And uh, it's been a source of a great deal of, you know, stimulating discussion on a wide array of um, political themes. And so the book is really a I, I guess I would describe it as a kind of encapsulation of those several years of conversations on the podcast that really kind of um, neatly summarizes a lot of those ideas in a, an accessible and brief form um, that is nevertheless also rich and in-depth in its arguments. So I enjoyed it very much. I'm delighted to hear it. And um, I mean, it's a very, I mean, it's an accurate kind of uh, or at least I think it fits with my understanding of what we were trying to do with the book, which is that we were trying to um, distill both the rationale for the podcast as well as the um, to kind of, I suppose, cull the insights and ideas that the various guests we had on the show were feeding to us and that were emerging in the course of the discussions that we had both amongst ourselves and also with the guests. And we wanted to kind of package that in a framework that would bring it all together and draw out perhaps some of the underlying themes and connections that were recurring in all the discussions we were having. And that is the um, purpose of the book and and also hopefully is contained within the idea, or, well, the title of the book, which is the idea essentially itself, the end of the end of history, politics in the 21st century. Yeah. And so particularly for my listeners who may not um, be yet familiar with Alpha Bunga Bunga, and the, this is sort of a three-part question, um, which is first, if you could just sum up this uh, unifying concept of the end of the end of history. And then within that, it's probably worth revisiting just briefly what the end of history was or was understood to be. And finally, I'm curious because I, again, have, have been listening since maybe 2017, 2018. So I'm sort of curious how your and perhaps your other co-hosts understanding of this moment has evolved kind of in the course of doing the podcast, because obviously many things have happened, um, you know, including the sort of, uh, I mean, one theme that perhaps we'll come back to, but is is the, the sort of um, dramatic fall of left populism. Um, although in some ways that was already arguably on the cards, um, you know, all the way back then. Um, but you know, that's just one example, but it, it seems like there are various ways that this um, this moment has really that you that you first diagnosed when you started the podcast has sort of evolved. Um, and perhaps uh, another example would be the arrival of the COVID pandemic um, being seemingly a dramatic um, sort of epochal shift in some ways. Um, so again, the 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 sort of three part question is 
could you define the end of the end of history for for listeners unfamiliar with the, with your podcast? Um, and perhaps within that, just take us back through the the basic end of history concept. And then finally, how has your sense of the end of the end of history evolved over the past several years? So the particular in the last question in particular is a really um, good and tough one. But if I begin with the end of history, so the end of history. Um, which I imagine, you know, most people who've um, been to university at some point over the last 20, 30 years, they will have encountered, um, or indeed, you know, if they've been kind of reading um, the, I suppose, the mainstream liberal press, places like the Herald Tribune or the Washington Post or New York Times and Guardian and so on. The end of the history was this idea that was coined by the Stanford political scientist Francis Fukuyama, and he was himself taking it from um, various interpretations of the German philosopher Hegel. And it was a basic way to, it was, I mean, you know, it was kind of seen as wildly controversial and um, it was misunderstood in many ways. Um, you know, they're kind of misinterpreted as the notion that things will simply cease and that no more new events will happen. But really what it was, and this is where we're sympathetic to what Francis Fukuyama was um, suggesting, was that the end of the Cold War, the end of the um, bipolar era of rivalry between the US and the Soviet Union in the early 1990s, there wasn't just a kind of um, a shift in the balance of power. Um, between or a kind of an alteration of um, a shuffling around of alliance politics on the international stage, but that it was in fact a qualitative transformation of the character of society and politics, and that this basic structuring division of left and right um, and everything that came with it of capitalism versus communism or socialism um, and all the kind of domestic structures of party politics, of ideological choice, of the way in which policies were structured around ideological choice, even, I mean, you know, I mean, other examples are given, but even down to say, you know, different kind of, um, I don't know, visions of um, architecture or urban design or these kinds of questions, everything had been structured around this ideological contestation for at least 50, um, if not 100 years, sorry, if not 200 years. And so, the end of the Cold War wasn't just a geopolitical victory, but a qualitative transformation. Um, and that liberal democracy or market capitalism, however you wanted to describe it, had essentially, um, it was seen as the peak of um, human development. And this was basically, and so it's, I suppose it's important to understand that it it didn't, it wasn't that, I, and I think this is easy to misconstrue in hindsight, it's not that everybody accepted it, and there were all sorts of kind of, um, you know, uh, there was all sorts of, uh, I suppose, carping um, and challenges of different kinds to this idea that liberal democracy was the final kind of form of human development and political development. But then nonetheless, there was no meaningful, coherent or organized opposition to that. So there was kind of small scale challenges. There were holdouts, I don't know, places like North Korea and Cuba, perhaps. There was um, disputes, these of anti-capitalist um, global protests. There was kind of Islamist and retro, other kind of retrograde phenomena. Um, but generally, the basic in terms of the way in which institutions, political and social and economic institutions functioned, in the way in which they legitimated themselves, um, there was no further, there was to be no further fundamental 
there was no possibility of qualitative improvement in the basic institutional organization of um, human society. So that was the end of history. And beginning with the crash in 2008, the great financial crash and the long kind of tale of political um, after effects that came with it, um, mainly populist, but not exclusively kind of populist challenges to um, the established status quo in Western democracies and elsewhere, that we decided, you know, we thought about um, how to describe the phenomena which pushed us to set up the podcast. And we thought that it was the end of the, to, call it, to describe it as the end of the end of history. And the reason for that is because it's, because there is nothing, um, there is no new substantive or positive way to describe what has replaced the end of history. So what we have is a crumbling away of that framework, of that post-Cold War framework of the international institutions, um, the party political systems, the economic policies, the various kind of international alliances to some degree, all of that kind of um, superstructure that had been set up on the Western victory in the Cold War. It has been kind of tottering and crumbling away and in some places has crumbled and there have been some changes, but it is not being replaced by anything. So all we see is a falling away rather than a replacement. So that I hope that gets the first two questions um, on the last question about how our about how our understanding has evolved over the course of um, this period of the end of the end of history is it's it's a really tough question, I suppose. I suppose left populism crumbled away more quickly than I anticipated, and you touched upon this. Um, it's not that I expected left populism to be especially um, effective or uh, that it would succeed in kind of establishing some kind of new political order, but I, I suppose I expected more among populists themselves, I expected more ideological variety, whereas the disintegration of significant left populist forces such as Podemos in Spain or Syriza, their um, overthrow in Greece, um, the defeat of the Corbyn project um, and Bernie to, in a different way in the US, all of these things, I think, speak to the kind of the containment and eventual kind of um, deflection of left populism. And that was an anticipated um, what else has been unanticipated um, in the end of the end of history or how it's evolved? Um, I suppose I can, I think I can see the uh, mechanisms of stabilization that are emerging now and they're perhaps less clear than they were before. I think, um, say, the fact that this, that um, the erosion of that we begin to see kind of uh, growing reference to the market, to the state uh, as a substitute for justifying political power and um, social organization to the market. And that seems to be kind of emerging. I guess the Green New Deal, I think, will be a way in which um, capitalist elites, just to say large corporations, um, leading uh, capitalist groups, um, firms, business elites and political elites, how they will seek to kind of stabilize the existing order. I think that will be one way in which they'll seek to pursue it. So I think some things are there, but it's um, it's only beginning to emerge, I think. So what the um, what the kind of uh, the end of the end of history, how it's evolved, there's a few um, phenomena kind of coming into focus, but I'm not sure I could um, I could give much more than that at this stage. Yeah, I mean, and I think we can, you know, that ties into some things I wanted to get into 
later on. Um, so, you know, the, those are some threads we can pick up. So, you know, it's interesting in relation, you know, this end of history idea, as you said, kind of, in a sense, goes back to Hegel and Hegel's sense of, I mean, initially his sense of the impact of uh, Napoleon, right? And then his sort of later, his sort of um, analysis of the Prussian state. So we don't need to get into that too much. But, you know, what, what I did want to say is there's kind of a, a, a Hegelian um, you know, what you were just saying that there's no positive content that is yet easily definable. And so what we have are kind of a series of negations, right? So this is structurally a very Hegelian sort of move. Um, so some along those lines, one thing that's really crucial in the book that I found very helpful in understanding your analysis is the distinction between these two kinds of negations of politics, the first being post-politics and the second being anti-politics. And so the way that you define this periodization in the book is closely tied to your analysis of these two distinct ways of, of sort of negating politics, um, which the first of which, again, is post-politics, the second of which is anti-politics. So I wonder if you could just talk about those two and kind of how they fit into the argument of the book. Yeah, sure. So post-politics was the what we used as a term to kind of characterize the defining characteristics of politics in the end of history era, which is to say that there was, once you take the basic kind of framework to be settled, and once, um, as I said before, the, kind of the notion that there's any qualitative improvement in the basic institutions of human life, once that's ruled out, then there are no real meaningful, significant political questions left. And so this is what we meant by the idea of a post-political era. You have the shrinking of the ideological spectrum, um, the taking for granted of certain kinds of basic questions. Um, fewer kind of policy options are offered to the electorate through the process of party political competition. Parties, political parties, in um, increasingly compete for the centre ground. It breeds the um, this notion: all political, you know, all politicians, all parties are essentially the same. There's no meaningful choice, and it corresponds also to the increasing handing over of um, or the increasing abandonment of swathes of policy making by politicians, which can be left to other kinds of institutions to settle. Um, supranational institutions, in the case of Europe, being the most obvious kind of example of that post-political phenomenon. So there's less contestation um, and there's more the simple kind of uh, yeah, acceptance of the status quo and that essentially our politicians are expected to act as efficient administrators and managers. And so that was what we took to be post-politics. Anti-politics, we take to characterize the wave of um, populist eruptions and also the wave of popular anger that is kind of washed through um, political systems, particularly in the Western world um, since the 2008 crisis. And this is varied. So, I mean, it's not only the most kind of obvious examples and dramatic examples, say, such as um, the North Northeast or voters of the Northeast giving the Electoral College to Trump in 2016 in swinging away from the Democrats, um, but also, say, you know, going back to the enormous public protests that happened in Syntagma Square in Greece and the Indignados in Spain, which didn't take any kind of um, obvious political 
or party political form initially. Um, they were defined as social movements. You know, they defined themselves explicitly against existing political parties and explicitly against representative modes of government. They eschewed the idea of representation. And that was also very similar with Occupy. It's kind of um, strong anarchist inspiration led to the... Um, abandonment of ideas of political authority and leadership. And so this, we think, defines this new era. So you have plenty of anger um, against and frustration with existing political systems rather than uh, acceptance of them. Um, but again, it's not really aiming at um, substantive transformation. It's more a case of um, angry revolt rather than an effort to um, struggle for power in such a way as to resolve fundamental social problems. And this is also evident, I think, in the populist challenges, because generally the characteristic of these populist challenges are that it's simply there's an elite that's in, you know, that's in the saddle. And if you can get rid of, if you can kind of um, oust the elite, then society kind of spontaneously recal recalibrates itself and we don't have the same kinds of problems. And this has been the kind of the motif of, ma of many populist challenges um, over the last uh, 10, 15 years or so, both on the right and the left. And that is anti-political, I think, rather than meaningfully political, because it suggests that there is some kind of um, coherent society that has no kind of uh, differences within itself and no need for resolving those differences politically. It's simply a kind of homogenous whole, which has been kind of captured or hijacked by this nefarious elite. However, that elite may be characterized, whether it's, um, you know, kind of um, Democrats in the view of Trump voters or um, whether it's uh, capitalists in the view of Corbyn voters, the elite simply need to be ejected and then society can be ordered more effectively. And so that's anti-politics. And so the problem is that we still don't really have politics between post-politics of the 1990s and anti-politics of the last 10, 15 years or so. We still don't have politics. So, and I think, you know, part of what this is useful for is sort of um, the the simplistic way of of understanding this kind of end of the end of history moment would simply be that it, it represents a sort of return to politics. Um, and and there is this bizarre way that it's, you know, it, it's it's been characterized by these kind of simulacra of of 20th century ideological contestations. So we have on one hand, this idea of the sort, I mean, on one hand, we have the sort of specter of, of a resurgent fascism, right? And then on the other hand, we have at least uh, a certain um, return to or attempt to return to a kind of, at least a, a sort of rhetoric of, of class struggle or some kind of sense of class politics, even though that's often been hollowed out in ways that we can talk about. Um, so, so, you know, to me, it seems like there are, the sort of superficial impression that, and I'm, I'm sort of in a way criticizing my own perhaps naive initial <laughs> thoughts on this five or so years ago that, you know, suddenly it seemed like there was some kind of return to these, these more heroic and dramatic ideological contestations, antagonisms of the 20th century that, you know, we had sort of growing up in the 90s and early 2000s kind of looked back on as a more exciting moment of, of greater danger, but also greater possibility compared to this kind of post-political moment where everything had been decided and waiting out um, a life of sort of bland comforts. So, you know, 
So I think, you know, part of what's useful about this post-politics, anti-politics framing is it allows for a different way to think about it. It's, and you explicitly say in the book that, you know, this is ultimately not a return of politics. Moment. Um, so why is it not, why is it not a return of politics and why should it not be understood that way? I mean, you've, you've sort of addressed this, but perhaps just no, more sure. directly. I mean, and I, you know, I entirely, you know, I entirely share your, um, I mean, you know, the way in which you said you felt, you know, five, five or seven years ago, that it seemed as if the um, disintegration of the status quo, that it opened up certain kinds of possibilities that had hitherto been um, to some degree unimaginable or, um, you know, seemed so kind of completely remote. And it was, um, it was remarkable. Um, and I remember in particular, I mean, I've, for, um, you know, for kind of, for, I mean, all sorts of personal reasons, essentially, I've never been, um, I've never been a particular uh, supporter of the UK Labour Party. Um, but back in 2015, I was heartened when Jeremy Corbyn um, became the um, became leader of the UK Labour Party, not least because he was um, he seemed to represent a very different kind of um, of uh, politics. Not that I was what heartened me in particular was not so much that I supported his politics, but simply the fact that it suggested they would be meaningful more meaningful choice, at least, um, and that there would be some kind of meaningful contestation over options. And so that notion that all politicians were the same, that we had no real meaningful political choices, that this would no longer be the case. And so it was um, in the kind of in the wake of the crisis and the kind of when things began to kind of uh, when all of those post political structures seem seemed to be kind of tottering and shaking. There was a moment in which it was um, exciting and seemed to be filled with possibility. So, you know, I share that, um, I share that memory um, as well. Um, and as it turned out, things to be, things turned, the oppositional forces seemed, turned out to be far weaker than, than, than we thought. So as regards um, the question of why is it not a political moment, I think it's mainly because I mean, I suppose there's different reasons you could account for it, but I think because the choices before us are still not meaningful choices, um, and for the most part, at least, and also that there is no political vision for how to use state power in a transformative way. Um, and there is no, I mean, if you think, I don't know, I suppose, for instance, if you take the... Um, some of the examples of what's happened or the rhetoric that's promised around certain kinds of things, there's always um, a disappointment and an ideological a kind of a restriction and suppression of any serious expectation. Most of the kind of the grand kind or most of the big offers, say, of um, the parts of left populism, um, say in the case of Bernie, they still seem to be essentially remedial. You know, the idea of kind of extending um, extending Medicare for all. Um, at the same time, there is no real, it seems to me, um, you know, there's no actual ability to suggest that there could be a fundamental transformation or that political power could be used to inaugurate a fundamental transformation in the nature of social and political life. Um, and as long as that is the case, then it seems to me there won't really be um, they couldn't really be meaningful politics because the choices are still very restricted um, and the way in which power is justified will always be limited. So, you know, on this theme of the sort of um, rise and fall of left populism, 
You know, it is interesting that, uh, and you've, you, you've had a few episodes about this, but going back to 2015, you know, with the capitulation of, um, of Syriza in Greece, basically you already had the kind of pattern set that as far as I can tell would, would later define all of the other left populist movements, right? That there would be a kind of capitulation. There would, there would always be a kind of capitulation to the sort of center left. Um, I mean, arguably um, in the case of Syriza, it was, it was more a capitulation to this, you know, sort of um, tyrannical bureaucracy of the, of the EU rather than the, the sort of, you know, I mean, so you could compare it in that way to, on the other hand, Podemos, which was often understood as kind of the, the sort of sister movement to Syriza. And, and they, I remember them after, um, you know, I remember Iglesias and Cyprus sort of appearing together on stage after Syriza won the elections. And there was this whole, you know, they, I remember them even saying they were like playing the Leonard Cohen song and saying like, first we take Athens, then we take Madrid or something, you know? So there was that kind of moment of spectacle and excitement and then total capitu- humiliating capitulation, Podemos, a different kind of capitulation, basically entering the, the um, coalition with the socialist party um, and thus seeming to consign itself to irrelevance, you know, you could see essentially Bernie's total capitulation to the um, to Biden in the sense of becoming, you know, an aggressive campaigner on behalf of the Democrats. Um, and, you know, very, you know, a number of variations on this kind of thing. But but essentially, um, it, it seemed to be a, a completely um, a, a sort of house of cards that just collapsed um, in all of these contexts. And so, you know, it, it's interesting just um, how this this pattern was set so early, right? Even before or alongside the initial, you know, by the time sort of Bernie became a significant force in the US, for example, Syriza had already capitulated. So, you know, I think there there's one, um, there's one term that kind of comes up again and again in the book, this hard, hard and hollow. And I have, my intuition is that that's maybe one of the more useful ways for thinking about why this, you know, there was a kind of inevitability of, <clears throat> of collapse, but does that, does that make sense to you or? No, absolutely. Perhaps you could explain the hard and hollow. Um, yes. Point. So, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think the, you know, the way, I think you're right. Retrospectively, it's very clear that Syriza, um, set the pattern and the precedent when it refused to. And I guess it's important to be clear about what Syriza's failure was because they won, you know, they um, they unexpectedly won a referendum. Um, so they went into the referendum not expecting to win, um, which was a referendum on whether or not to accept the bailout package, which was being with, with stringent austerity being imposed on Greece by the European Union. Um, they won unexpectedly. They had no plan for winning. And then they surrendered anyway. They expected, they accepted a new package from the EU that was um, far more punishing, you know, and Greece is still kind of crawling out of the trough of um, the economic depression inflicted on it by Eurozone austerity. And you're right that it set the precedent. And I suppose the important point about that is that it's, um, it was the unwillingness of the Greek left as constituted in, in Syriza. And it's worth remembering, I think, that Syriza um, 
they'd eliminated PASOK, the traditional kind of social democratic um, Greek party, as a as a significant force in Greek politics. Um, and despite this, so there was no kind of, you know, there was no centre, left centre to surrender to. The left centre, in effect, was the European Union um, and the liberal technocracy and kind of austerity that it wanted to impose. But the Syriza didn't want to lead the nation. Syriza had no desire and no political vision or will to take, um, to exercise the will of the Greek people. Um, to exercise any kind of vision of sovereign power or simply to exercise self-determination. They didn't want to lead, essentially. And so when there was no political will to do that, despite the their enormous um, resounding popular success in the referendum, um, then in that case, you know, there would be no choice but to capitulate. And perhaps the most, um, actually, you know, the, the greatest premonition there is of Labour's capitulation on on the Brexit referendum, right? And the and Corbyn's capitulation of the second referendum yeah. demand. Absolutely. So I think, I mean, the very fact that Labour was unable to significantly, you know, was, um, well, that it swung behind the idea of Remain and there was no real significant split within Labour, unlike the Tories, um, among, at least among, you know, the kind of the parliamentary forces of the Labour Party for supporting um, leaving the European Union. But by 2019, like you say, Corbyn himself, who comes, you know, and it's a significant capitulation because he comes from, you know, he's a long-standing backbench rebel of the Benite tradition, um, Eurosceptic opposition to the European Union going back to the early 1980s. He'd been there a long time and he surrendered to the idea that the that the vote to leave was illegitimate um, and that it needed to be redone. Um, and so that was a significant capitulation. And again, it speaks to the same unwillingness, I think, on the part of the left um, to lead, essentially to lead the nation. Um, there's no desire to wield political power and to um, to pull the population at large with you. I mean, I think that's what's so what's so striking. And this was brought out by one of um, this was brought out in a session that we had on our podcast with um, with a Greek contributor, Jonas Christazas, was the enormous popular power, popular power that Syriza had far beyond the left. You know, when it went into the referendum in 2015, it had a huge swathe of Greek society, including very traditional um, and conservative elements in Greek society, voters for other parties, and they were willing, you know, had they been, um, had Syriza been willing and able to lead them, um, they would have had the political capacity to to exit the European Union. And it's the unwillingness of the left to go beyond, to have any idea that they, that, um, that it should rule society effectively and that it could reshape society. It's that that I think is lacking. And so this long pattern of capitulation, like you say, so Syriza, Bernie, and I'd say Bernie even earlier than becoming an aggressive campaigner for Biden, but also when he surrendered to Hillary in the Democratic Convention. I mean, I think in many ways that was the more significant point because he'd been talking such a grand game up until then. You know, when somebody asked him, I remember seeing an interview with him when somebody asked him whether he would serve in a Hillary cabinet, he said, you should ask her whether she would serve in my cabinet. Um, and all of that kind of political, like you say, all that kind of um, political confidence and aggression against the establishment, uh, the centrist kind of establishment of the Democrats, all of that was, you know, posturing and bluster. It all faded away. And um, so you have this long, yeah, the rise and fall of left populism and this long series of capitulations to the centre um, because they're unwilling to lead, 
they have no vision of leadership, they have no appetite for leadership, and they have no belief in their, they have nothing to offer the majority, ultimately. And in so doing, they will always kind of um, crumble away before the technocrats of the center who will always have like, you know, some kind of um, plan, some kind of set of policies, some kind of set of compromises um, against which all the kind of the rhetoric and the bluster will crumble. And this seems, uh, you know, I, I brought up this hard, hard but hollow um, phrase. Yeah, sorry, I forgot where, to pick that no, up. No, it's okay. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I packed a bunch into the question, but, you know, it in a way it's illustrated in what you just said, right? That um, the hard side is the the hard, um, you know, the, the hard part of the state is still the the robustness of the sort of um, the sort of managerial um, functioning of the state um, as as sort of um, controlled by the political establishment. And the hollow is the kind of hollowing out of any kind of means of channeling or sustaining popular opposition. Yeah. So that- I should, I mean, I should, we should, I mean, I should credit it. So it's the phrase from the Italian political scientist, Vincent della Sala. Um, and it's a way to describe the contemporary European state. But I think it applies more generally across the Western world, like you say. So you have these kind of, um, you know, significant kind of technical and coercive capacities, and they've been on display throughout the COVID pandemic. But at the same time, just any um, uh, significant kind of uh, public authority or political power in the sense that they sustain and engage and can mobilize and rally significant portions of the population through established political or institutional channels that's lacking. And so you have these hard shells, but they're brittle because they have nothing on the inside. And um, this sort of relates also to the, you know, what 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 these left populist movements relied on in terms of mobilization was largely this kind of urban educated class that, um, you know, was often composed of sort of somewhat down, downwardly mobile professional aspirants who, you know, you first saw um, rally to things like Occupy as well as the sort of equivalent movements of young people in in Europe um, around the same time, movements of the squares and so on. And then you saw them kind of, you saw exactly those same people after this kind of, you know, and we could talk about this more, but this moment of, or this, this final flowering of this moment of kind of leaderless horizon, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> kind of, uh, I mean, it, it, we could argue that that's a kind of, that was the sort of, I mean, and I think you do that it's, it was sort of the, the type of left organizing that matched the spirit of post politics in a sense. Um, and then, and then what you have in the subsequent years is uh, a migration towards these left populist campaigns. Um, and then, you know, basically what, what that means is that you have a relatively small and, detached portion of the population who's, um, you know, who are on the one hand mobilized for these left populist causes, but on the other hand, as is the case with say the, um, you know, uh, the European union issue in, in the, in the UK um, are in many ways unable to break fully with the political establishment that they ostensibly oppose, right? Because they're, they're sort of culturally and socially and, politically dependent on it in ways that prevent prevent them from actually becoming a genuinely oppositional force. And so perhaps part of the weakness of these movements is that they're they're the base they can mobilize is largely this this faction that's 
ultimately not truly oppositional. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's the, that's put very well. And what we, that is what we try to do in the book. We try to describe how, um, the left kind of shifted, like you say, from the kind of Occupy model, flat, horizontal, leaderless, um, that emerged itself out of the kind of anti-globalization movements of the late 1990s and early 2000s. So Occupy, and then Occupy fizzled out and you had the, and the squares and the movement of the squares and all that. And you had what seemed to be the return of left-wing political parties, such as um, uh, Momentum, the Corbynite kind of insurrection within the Labour Party, uh, the Bernie phenomenon within the Democrats, um, and then on the other hand, the kind of external challenges such as Podemos or um, Syriza in Greece. And so you seem to have a return from the the kind of the anarchism and the leaderlessness. You seem to have a return to political organisation, to political hierarchy, to attempts to kind of aggregate political will in a traditional form. And I suppose what I'm saying is that the, um, you know, they failed in their task of representation. So they failed to act as effective um, vehicles of popular representation. And this is why they failed um, as political parties and that they were never really kind of committed or able to act as effective agents of political representation, precisely because in many ways they were um, populists, which is to say that they uh, restricted themselves to a populist vision of political reconstitution. They allowed themselves to be trapped in kind of anti-elite posturing rather than offering something more substantive in terms of um, a political transformation of society. And understanding society is more politically fractured than just being oppressed by a kind of narrow elite. Um, and then on top of that, I would also add to that, I think the um, that failure of representation, I think, is also reflects the the base, like you say, of these groups. And in retrospect, I'd even go further. And I, this isn't really developed in the book, but I think it's kind of, I think, more apparent is to say that the all of the kind of what seemed to be the great kind of flowering of new socialist ideas and theories and excitement around various um a kind of um, this recrudescence of what seemed to be kind of classical ideas of socialism and Marxism, a lot of that seemed to be to an ideological froth in retrospect for a kind of a, a social group that was excluded from the benefits of the end of history. So this particular group, like you say, kind of professional aspirants who were squeezed for all sorts of reasons, you know, kind of paying high rent in these um, urban cores that had been colonized by banks and corporations, living in small rooms, um, not enjoying kind of wages or jobs that fit their sense of, um, that fit their, edu their degree of education and their professional aspirations. Um, and uh, that the all the kind of the dramatic turn to and the dramatic explosion of um, classical ideas of socialism and Marxism and anarchism, even and all of these other ideas, they were effectively um, an attempt to rattle the cage um, rather than expressing something more substantive and um, something more deeply rooted in society. And so it's unsurprising that the the degree of their willingness to kind of mount political challenges was limited because they wanted to be let in, essentially. Um, and this was evident, particularly in the UK, where I'm based, because the idea, you know, it became, it was easier for that group, like you say, that group of kind of momentum supporters who supported Jeremy Corbyn, it was easier for them to imagine the end of socialism. Sorry, it was easier for them to imagine the end of capitalism than it was the end of the European Union. 
Um, they could come up with all sorts of great and dramatic ideas about how we could, uh, what socialism would look like on a continental scale. We could transform the European Union, make it socialist, and there'd be socialist governments everywhere and all of this. But they couldn't imagine the end of the European Union. And so I think that that speaks very clearly to how um, shallow the, the kind of the revival of left-wing ideologies was and how... Um, weak, essentially, the social forces mobilized by left populism were. So somewhat related to that, um, I'm kind of interested in the, and because this is the, you know, outsider theory podcast, I wanted to bring this in. You know, you discussed these kinds of various types of political outsiders who have been, and, and I mean, in some cases, you know, pseudo outsiders, I suppose, but, you know, various kinds of political outsiders who have emerged in these moments of both post-politics and anti-politics, particularly the latter. Um, And, you know, one theme that that you discuss is um, this idea that, that, you know, there are these kinds of, um, there's this particular type of politician, you know, who's often a kind of right populist of some sort, who, um, referring to, you know, the kinds of uh, educated sort of urban professional class you know, is is often particularly frustrated by because these um, these types of leaders are often more appealing to uh, the the working class that they claim to represent than they themselves or the people they support are right, and so they're um, they're constantly frustrated by these types of figures. Be they Trump, be they um, I mean, you talk about Bolsonaro in Brazil, you talk about um, Erdogan in Turkey as well. And so, you know, what's what's frustrating to them is the, the idea that these figures, you know, who or, you know, I guess we might think of in the UK context, perhaps Farage is another example, <laughs> you know, these figures who, um, you know, frustrate, uh, I suppose, people of your and my approximate sort of sector of the population because they 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 don't understand how um how people can believe that these these you know these rich guys are are actually outsiders right but what they what they fail to see is the distinction between what we might call a sort of outsider status that has to do with social and cultural capital versus um you know their position seems to be these guys are wealthy how can they be understood as on the side of the people um and so this seems you know, to me, a really interesting blind spot as far as understanding the the way that um, social and cultural capital play into politics. And you discuss the way that, um, you know, it's, it's actually, um, in some ways, quite straightforward to see why um, a sort of right politics um, is often more appealing to a broader swathe of the population than a left politics, which is which is particularly defined by its affiliation with sort of highly educated urban people. So I thought that was a really interesting discussion and, you know, was helpful in kind of understanding the appeal of this type of figure. Um, could you talk about that a bit? Cause I thought that was one of the more, you know, revealing points in the book. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, there was a famous, so the one, the image that sticks in my head from that particular period was a very famous one of um, when um, Nigel Farage went to kind of, um, uh, he went, visited New York. This was long before the pandemic. I think it was 2016 even. Um, and he visited New York and visited Donald Trump. This was in um, kind of, uh, I guess, hoping to um, suggest that there was some 
you know, similarity of um, of outsider status. And there was a bunch of um, UKIP politicians, which was um, Farage's party at the time, as well as Donald Trump, standing in this completely ostentatious golden elevator in a room that looked golden, you know, with a kind of typical um, kind of garish Trumpian um, decoration and ornamentation that you get in the in Trump Tower in New York and these other buildings. And everyone at the time, the left at the time, were kind of sneering and laughing about this. So look, you know, these rich kind of rich white guys um, in their suits smiling in a golden elevator and they cast themselves as men of the people and being outsiders and all the rest of it. Um, completely missing the point, um, like you say, about the way in which that kind of, the way in which they were able to because there wasn't their outsider status in terms of, you know, what school they went to or how, whether or not they were born wealthy or, um, you know, whether or not their buildings were kind of garish or how they were decorated, but rather simply that they, way in which they related to people's aspirations um, and that they could channel them more effectively um, and that there was, uh, that they weren't um, cast in the mold of being scolds or in the mold of being kind of sources of um, of uh, paternalistic kind of authority, but rather is that they claim the status of leaders, that we will seek to kind of champion your interests, um, that we will seek to kind of offer you a better deal, that if you give us kind of power, we will try to do things for you. Um, and this is something, like you say, which um, particularly kind of uh, that, liberal and left urban professionals and their kind of allies and associated kind of aspirational classes and all that, they simply could not comprehend that that very, and it's a very basic and old fashioned model of politics, you know, elect me and I'll do all these great things for the country and for you. I'll make things better. Don't, you know, you want things to be better for your country, don't you? Um, but this was inconceivable to them. The idea that, Paula, you know, that you could um, want things to be better for, for, um, for your people rather than for you know everyone and for the planet and for um species in the amazon that are being wiped out and for you know to solve african poverty and climate change the idea that you could make politics about you know appealing to the interests of a specific group rather than casting it in the kind of grandest and most inflated global terms it was something which was kind of mind melting it melted their brains and they never quite recovered from it um and again it spoke to that attachment to supranational and cosmopolitan visions of politics that were very much part of the end of history and in the end it turned out that the um the left liberals and um, the professional managerial class and all the rest of that, they were far more attached to those institutions than they were to, um, they were far more attached to neoliberal, the neoliberal um, political institutions um, than they had ever imagined themselves to be. Yeah, no, it's, um, and I think this also relates to, um, I mean, it, it relates to something I've commented on a bunch of times, right, which is this whole, this whole discussion about interests, right? You have this, um, and, you know, to me, this seems like another classic kind of end of history discourse, which in the U.S. context kind of goes back to this Thomas Frank, you know, what's the matter with Kansas? I can't remember exactly what I think that came out kind of during the first Bush term, perhaps. Um, you know, so it, yeah, it was 2005, and the, and the, maybe something like that, or maybe the second Bush term then. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Yeah. So you know, with Bush, you had this already, right? This idea that, oh, how can these people think he's a man of the people, you know? Uh, and th so, I mean, that was one example of it. But then beyond that, there was just this idea of vote, you know, 
oh, these people don't understand that they're voting against their interests. Um, So one of the ironies of that, as I've pointed out elsewhere, is that, you know, the people who are saying that, as you were just suggesting, they conceive of themselves as voting not on the basis of pure material self-interest, right? So they think, okay, on one hand, I, I, I vote out of principle, right? I vote because I want to do what's best for humanity as a whole or something like that. I'm not, and you know, and if that means that I have to pay higher taxes or, you know, the consumer goods I buy are more expensive, so be it because that's what's best for the world, right? Um, so th- the same people who would say, why is some, you know, hypothetical farmer in Kansas or wherever voting against their, their own interests, supposedly, um, would would also conceive of their own politics as not entirely motivated by self-interest. So it's a it's a completely incoherent um, discourse, you know, from the perspective of the people who have most embraced it. Um, because they're and and so it almost seems as if it's it's this kind of strange idea that well, you know, as as one of the good people and you know as a truly enlightened person, I'm sort of in a position to vote on the basis of something other than pure material self-interest. But these other sort of simpler folks over there, surely they should just be voting for whoever's going to, um, I don't know, give them slightly better welfare benefits or something if they're unemployed. Um, so it's a, it's a very strange discourse. And I mean, that, that to me was one of the sort of defining kind of left liberal um, questions of that sort of end of history period. And then, you know, it's, it seems as if it, it, it sort of came back in different ways in in the Trump era, although, you know, there it was sort of, I mean, it, it became more, I, I would say it sort of became increasingly bizarre because you had to have people saying like, oh, well, you know, if you support protectionist policies, it means you want, well, you, it, you know, if, if you want Americans to have those jobs back, that means you want, you know, Bangladeshis to starve or something like that. So it became incre- increasingly convoluted and, and bizarre. But, um, you know, so in other words, even if you conceded that uh, there was, they might be supporting this out of some kind of material self-interest, then somehow that material self-interest became a kind of um, unacceptable selfishness. <laughs> so yeah. so it, it's, it's such a strange kind of complex. And it, it seems like, again, that was sort of a, a weird way that the, the left liberal segments of the population kind of in the end of history moment were trying to make sense of their, their sense of themselves as benefactors of, you know, the less well-off um, combined with the fact that those that the less well off didn't seem to particularly like their politics, <laughs> it's a really it's a really good point, yeah. And that I think it's uh, it's spot on and gives the lie, like you say, to um, all these patronizing claims about how um, people voting against their interests and all of that. Like um, it really it's really revealing. Well, I mean, going kind of along with this, it's probably worth going to your, um, you know, who you describe as the patron, the evil patron saint of the podcast, Berlusconi, who in some way was sort of the 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 original figure in this kind of Trump Farage, et cetera, mold. Um, and interestingly, was kind of a figure of both. I don't know if you agree. I can't remember if you say this exactly, but of sort of both post politics and anti politics of both a kind of, in other words, of, of both a kind of post-political technocracy, but also of a kind of anti-political populism. Um, so he's, 
you know, for that reason, he's this kind of um, this figure that encapsulates in himself and in his career, all of these different sort of themes that you've explored on the podcast and in the book. Um, yeah. So for those not yet versed in, in this, perhaps you could yeah, absolutely. talk about Silvio. Happily. I mean, so very elderly now in his 80s, but um, we took, I mean, chapter six of the book is called Italy, Country of the Future. The claim being that um, Italy in the 1990s presaged many of the kind of phenomenon that would become global effectively and certainly um you know certainly spread across the western world so like you say berlusconi is um he preempts you know figures like trump i mean he himself was this kind of brash um charismatic in his own way ceo of a major telecommunications company got involved in property in italy and he smashed up the um the parties of the first republic he um at the end of the 90s when the italian political elite crumbled in kind of uh, ignominy and corruption berlusconi emerged with this kind of joke party called forza italia which doesn't even mean anything but is just kind of a slogan from the football team um, the Italian football team of the time, it means something like, you know, go Italy or something like that. It wasn't really ideological at all, but it was defined by its hostility to established elites. Um, and Italy's been trapped. You know, I mean, the other point is that Italy's, it's not only that kind of Silvio Berlusconi who became the this figure who would dominate Italian politics and in that period and that's kind of presaged the populist politicians of our day, but that also... Italy has been stuck. It's been stuck between the kind of populist challenges and the attempts to stabilize the technocratic center ever since. And that is, it seems, what the pattern of our politics is, has been and will continue to be um, for the foreseeable future, at least, which I think, you know, for say for the next uh, decade, essentially, it's going to be oscillating between populism and technocracy, liberal technocracy, essentially. And Berlusconi, again, he combined both of these elements in a single person because his, you know, insofar as he had an ideology, it was... Um, you know, cast against the incumbents, the established, the, both the Christian Democrats and the socialists. Um, at the same time, it had this kind of demotic, um, and it, well, so it, as part of that challenge, it had this demotic appeal, um, populist, popular. He appealed to the people at large and to their interests and to their kind of uh, jadedness and disgust with, um, with the established kind of ruling elites of the Italian Republic. And at the same time, very technocratic. He was very, um, initially at least, very much in support of Italy's engagement with um, the deepening and uh, the deepening of the European Union. And also he cast himself as um, an as efficient, you know, as the experience of being a CEO, of leading large business corporations, of being a successful businessman, entrepreneur, wealthy. All of this was taken as evidence of his um, capacity to lead efficiently in a way that broke with the patterns of the old kind of clientelistic and corrupt and nepotistic politics of the Italian parties. And so he combined these various themes. And so we thought it would be appropriate to choose him as we kind of joke, you know, kind of as the evil patron saint of, um, of the podcast, because Italy um, has kind of been the laboratory um, for so many of these, of the kinds of politics that we see now. So it's another figure, a more recent figure who comes up in some interesting ways in the book that I, you know, who's sort of a, a curious counterpart to Berlusconi in the sense that he seems to bring together certain apparent opposites is uh, Macron. And, you know, particularly in that he, he somehow has a, 
um, you know, he, he, he has a certain kind of um, cultivated outsider status yet at the same time as, you know, sort of became beloved of the sort of <clears throat> international sort of technocratic ruling class. Um, he has a, and has cultivated a kind of populist appeal alongside that um, has sort of oscillated between being a sort of savior of the super supernatural supranational, excuse me, um, sort of European structures, while at the same time presenting himself as a kind of neo-Gaullist in the French context. So, I mean, I wonder if he's sort of a an interesting sort of more contemporary counterpart to the paradoxical role of Berlusconi, and and also, if so, perhaps is he a a harbinger of of what's coming down the pipeline in the way that Berlusconi was? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I, it's, um, so I suppose, I mean, Macron does combine these themes very well. And he's what some other political scientists, um, uh, Christopher Bickerton and Carlo Invernetti Acetti have called techno-populism um, that combines elements of both technocracy and populism. And Macron certainly seems to do that in so far as he, um, you know, he offers kind of a post-ideological politics, which is in contrast to the old parties, so technocratic to that extent, but also engages constantly kind of refers to the French people, doing things on behalf of the French people um, and the kind of the needs and meeting the needs of the French people in an efficient an effective way that cuts through the uh, the traditional or the previously established party political way of doing things. Um and so he has, he's, you know, he's kind of cultivated that outsider status for himself as well. And he had some kind of uh, brief stint with the French Socialist Party, but was far more, like you say, a liberal centrist than he was anything else. And now, like, yeah, so he's shifting kind of, he seems to be shifting more to the right and casting himself as a neo, like you say, as a neo-Gaullist, um, defending the French nation. And this, he talks in terms of sovereignty in a way which is quite striking, but he conflates French sovereignty with European sovereignty, whatever that might mean, um, never detaches the idea of France separately from the European Union, and always talks in terms of um, French leadership of this kind of larger international partnership um, embodied in the French, sorry, in the European Union. And I suppose it's a good question. Does it mean that Macron will potentially be the um, that that kind of rightward drift is something that would be visible with liberal centrists elsewhere? I think it probably I think I mean, I think it probably will. And I think, you know, that to some extent, I mean, that's built in now to when there's kind of greater uh, geopolitical contestation and the idea of a geopolitical challenge in China. That means, I think, that liberal centrists and technocrats will cast their, will justify their rule in terms of the imperative of um, needing to be efficient and successful in order to meet these external challenges, whether it be Russia or China and so on. And also at the same time, I think, I mean, some of this is also built into French political structures, given the nature, the, the strength of the French presidency in particular kind of accentuates the features of this um, idea of championing, of stand, not only of kind of standing above the fray, but also um, championing ideas of uh, defending the country and um, the kind of the rightward drift of Macron, you know, and he's also taken, he's also tried to kind of um, take very hard lines against Islamism, even claiming to be kind of ideologically at war with Islamism, um, to the extent famously that one of his subordinates kind of shocked um, Marine Le Pen 
um, in a televised debate with the stance they where they were willing to take. And so that rightward drift, I think, is, like I say, to some degree, I think it's locked into the structures of the French state with its presidentialism. Um, but I think it probably does indicate the way that liberal technocrats are going to be forced to, to shift rightwards in order to meet what they see to be um, a populist challenge. And again, it will only betray, I think, their general kind of bad faith. The only way that they understand in kind of channeling people's needs and interests is by pandering, essentially, is by pandering to um, their fears of security, their fears of external threats. And that is the way they, you know, they'll justify it as needing to kind of meet the voters' aspirations. But what in effect it will be, it will only speak to their own kind of lack of any real um, liberalism to begin with. Yeah, I mean, another reason I asked uh, is what's one interesting recent thing about Macron was his sort of coming out against this sort of American social justice ideology, you know, in relation to his sort of attempts to um, position himself as a sort of anti-Islamist hardliner. You also you also have him kind of and, and you know, you had this kind of anti-woke um, faction here, and I imagine in the UK too, so suddenly sort of praising him for his um, harsh words about the ideological you know, exportation of, of these ideals from the U.S. to France and how they're, they're sort of, um, you know, distorting French, uh, um, you know, universalism and, um, gi- you know, giving, fr- giving French academics all of these harmful sort of racial essentialist views and so on. So, I mean, it is interesting to see him. I mean, and, and it does make me wonder, and this is part of why I thought, um, you know, he could be a, a harbinger of things to come. You know, if you have these sort of, um, you know, as you discuss in the book, these sort of different kinds of establishment parties and politicians trying to capture certain anti-political or populist energies and resentments, you know, one might be against this kind, you know, if, if there is a sort of global exportation of, um, as you're co-host Alex called it, you know, the the sort of American idealism in the form of this kind of racial justice ideology. Um, and if that's suddenly cropping up in sort of elite spaces around the world, even in places where it makes almost zero sense, um, you know, if, if Macron's sort of um, latching onto that issue as a way of sort of trying to channel certain of these resentments and, and at least build a certain kind of populist um, appeal yeah. On that basis, I, I do wonder if that's a sign of of things that may be coming, particularly in in other parts of Europe and 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 other places in the world where these kinds of views are suddenly all over academia and the sort of NGO sphere. Yeah, it's a, again, I mean, it's a really good point, and I think it. So I think, I mean, in France, it's very particular because the French, you know, it speaks to um, again, it can allow him to kind of play to um, defending the republic. Um, it allows Macron to kind of play as a defender of the French nation. And, the, you know, they've been strong kind of nativist um, nativist uh, sentiments over French culture for a long time across the political spectrum. I mean, not only Gaulism, but even, I mean, the old Stalin, the French Stalinist, the old French Communist Party, you know, famously participated in, um, in a kind of anti-Coca-Cola campaign. I think back in the day as a way of kind of defending France from these foreign imports and the the nativism of French Stalinism, you know, tied very well in with the gen with that uh, sentiment on the French right. So there's been a strong overlap there for a long time and he can build on that. And um, 
I'm not sure how well it carries elsewhere, though, for instance. So there's a strong anti-woke element to um, Tory politics in Britain at the moment. But they can't. It's interesting because they can't cast it as an American import. And the reason they can't do that is because it would jeopardize Britain's sense of its place in the world. So if they made a strong case that this was kind of a, you know, a noxious import from America that had nothing to do with British um, culture and the British nation and the British people, whatever, um, you know, it would clash with the idea that Amer- that Britain needs America, which is you know, has long been the kind of um, the Tory line for Britain, particularly in light of Britain's removal from the European Union. Um, and they cast about des- because, precisely because, you know, they feel their own kind of lack of political confidence and political self-sufficiency. They cast about desperately um, and they cling all the more tightly to America's skirts once they don't have the... Um, once they don't have the uh, protection of Brussels. And so it makes it more difficult for them to take that line in um, in Britain. Whereas elsewhere, you know, it might, it could conceivably work, you know, in places like Germany, perhaps, um, maybe Italy and Spain, like you say. But I think, again, there is, a, it's a particular kind of um, aspect of French politics that perhaps um, gives it this particular inflection that they can defend themselves or the anti-woke um, ideology campaign can be cast as um, a national one, a nationalist one. Yeah, that's it. That's really interesting. I mean, it, it, it seems to me also that, um, you know, the problem you're describing with the, the way that the Tories can't really capitalize it on as a as a kind of nationalist in the sense of anti-U.S. sentiment in the way that um, the in the way that the French might is um, is also reminiscent of you know one of the paradoxes of sort of right wing politics in the U.S. at the moment, which is that they kind of um, you know the you know when you increasingly have sort of the the entire spectrum of sort of multinational corporations um, preaching the same gospel, you know on the other hand you have this right that has historically positioned itself as the defender of capitalism and free enterprise against this dangerous foreign um, elements represented by communism. And so on one hand, you have them claiming that and trying to, you know, you have these kinds of provocateurs and and sort of ideological entrepreneurs on the right, um, constantly going back to this weird kind of Cold War, almost McCarthyite rhetoric of, well, the thing about critical race theory is it's really just Marxism. Um, but at the same time, they have to contend with the fact that, you know, the places that are preaching this mo- stuff most influentially are the very sort of beacons of free enterprise that they, you know, have spent their entire careers defending. And so they, they're, they're, they're stuck in this bind where they, um, they have to, uh, remain in the, in their traditional mode of being defenders of free enterprise against communism. And yet it's, it's from a realm of free enterprise that these ideas are actually being most influentially promoted at this point. Um, yeah. So they're, you know, they're, they're in this very strange position, the, these kind of anti-woke um, entrepreneurs, um, you know, and that they, they keep falling back on this kind of Cold War anti-communist rhetoric. But at the same time, what they're contending with is essentially something that's been embraced by you know, by global capital itself. <laughs> so it goes back to your question in the at the start, which is the um, things that I, the way in which the end of the end of history has evolved. And one of the things I did not anticipate was that um, that woke capitalism would become such a kind of evident and strong strain. 
So, you know, I mean, it's been a while now that, you know, the major corporations and the big kind of investment banks, they all have their LGBT kind of division as part of human resources and all that, but that they would pile in so strongly, say, behind Black Lives Matter. They did have Amazon executives um, filming themselves on BLM marches in the early phases, that so many corporations would put up the trans pride flag, um, as well as kind of um, ever increasingly kind of strengthening and branding themselves um, for Gay Pride Month, um, and that they would be so uh, confident and assertive. I suppose in that it's not just a sim, you know not just as a sim, as a simple kind of um, as a simple side exercise, but that it seems so significant to their social media presence, um, to the way in which they relate to their employees, to the way in which they relate to their customers. You know, in if particularly if they have physical spaces, um, putting up kind of um, pride flags or talking about their kind of employees who are gay, kind of um, all this kind of stuff. It's that was um, remarkable because I didn't expect it to be so strong and so quick. And that seems to me to be another kind of significant component of our era that probably still has a ways to go and hasn't really been, um, I don't think it has been really dealt with because the only people who are kind of really complaining about it tend to be on the right. And they, like you say, they're essentially stumped, you know, they're caught in a bind because they want on the one hand to defend capitalism, but on the other hand, they f- they see themselves kind of facing um, these enormous kind of powerful capitalist corporations, and they have no real way to meaningfully or convincingly make sense of that except in nonsensical conspiratorial terms. And so I think that kind of the, the analysis of that is um, really yet to be done, at least as far as I'm aware anyway. Yeah. And then you also have the military industrial complex, you know, which which, again, all the all the sort of pillars of the Cold War anti-communist right, you know, have all essentially become (laughs) enthusiastic promulgators of all of these things that are now anathema to the right. And so the right sort of all all the all the the things that they defended um, have turned against them. Right. And so on one hand, I think they're, they're sort of um, gaining traction with, you know, say a, a certain kind of populist traction with these kinds of anti-critical race theory bills on the state level like that. But more broadly, I would say they're, they're still stumped because they don't, they don't actually know how to explain the phenomenon that they're confronting. I mean, they can ban it in schools as much as they want, but, you know, anybody who's ever ridden an Uber is still getting emails from, you know, from Uber um, talking about why we have to all be anti-racists and so on. I mean, this is, um, and they, they don't have any, you know, that as much as they want to ban what's going on in schools, they they don't have any response to that. Um, And that's, I would say the, the far more influential force in kind of um, rendering these ideas hegemonic um, ultimately. So, um, to sort of shift a little bit, I, I did want to talk about, you know, so I, I think the, the sort of center of gravity in this book is, you know, is, is Europe and the U.S. and is Europe and North America. But I would also say that, <clears throat> you know, and this is, um, because one of your, one of your podcast hosts is, is based there on Brazil and particularly the trajectory from these kinds of amorphous anti-political protests that emerged there in the early 2000s, a little bit, you know, or I guess around the same time as the Arab Spring, um, and that, you know, ultimately propelled 
this, um, you know, probably the hardest right of the right populists, uh, Jair Bolsonaro's power. Um, so, you know, so that receives some very um, detailed and interesting analysis as well in comparison with various phenomena elsewhere. Um, you also do discuss um, Erdogan in Turkey as, a, as another interesting, you know, again, of the, these kind of right populist uh, political outsiders who manages to capitalize on the resentment of particularly sort of rural and provincial people against the traditional political elite. And then I'm not sure if you discuss it, but, you know, it seems like another interesting analysis would be, and, and you had a an episode, a good episode about this recently, but the rise of, you know, Modi in India. Um, so there are sort of, um, there are sort of certain themes that you're able to trace beyond that sort of transatlantic, you know, sort of NATO sphere. Um, but, you know, two areas that, that you've mentioned um, as, you know, particularly as these kind of real or spectral antagonists, um, are, are Russia and China, obviously Russia being, you know, having played this strange kind of spectral role in, in U.S. politics and to some extent U.K. politics in recent years. Um, China, you know, particularly <clears throat> since uh, COVID, you know, sort of becoming much more embattled in its, um, you know, deep, deep economic integration with, with the U.S. Um, and, and the rest of the world. But you know, what, what I'm getting at here is I think, you know, one thing, and this isn't a criticism, but, um, you know, one, one area the book doesn't address sort of head on are these two, you know, large and influential um, states that, you know, in their own ways embody the, the kind of themes of the book. You know, we could take the Chinese example as, a, as embodying one particular kind of post-politics, right, where, um, you know, essentially the um, it, you know, communist ideology is sort of strangely hollowed out and and turned into a kind of functionally a sort of ideology of of nationalistic um, developmentalism and and then you know but but then there have been sort of um, attempts by and I'm I'm not an expert here but attempts by politicians like. Xi Jinping to um, to sort of reactivate certain um, you know stronger political and ideological um, elements of Chinese communism in in response to some of the discontents of the sort of Chinese post political era and particularly the kind of corruption that has come out of that and so you do have a sort of parallel you could argue a sort of parallel development there. Um, and then Russia being interesting in all sorts of ways, but, you know, one that I'm thinking of is, you know, the way that it's represented, for example, in Adam Curtis's hypernormalization as, you know, embodying this kind of, um, the, the perfection of this kind of postmodern politics of spectacle um, under Putin, and particularly the way that um, a certain kind of, um, a certain kind of strange, post-political consensus is, is created um, through, a, through a, a certain kind of propagandistic methodology um, that, you know, that, that stabilizes the country politically in this, in this kind of weirdly post-ideological or, or ideologically eclectic way.
Yeah. So, I, I mean, the, these two seem like obviously very big store and complicated stories to tell. But, you know, there are interesting ways that even though they, they sort of lie outside of the immediate sort of um, focus of the book, they're they are sort of interesting parallel histories. No, absolutely. I'm curious if you have any um, have any thoughts. Yeah, two I, th- examples. I think you put it very well. I mean, in terms of the, so, you know, we, the tagline for the podcast is the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. And so we've always tried to, um, we've always tried to cast our net wide, which is why, like you say, we talk about Erdogan and particularly Bolsonaro, as well as the Indian Prime Minister Modi. And it's been a very important theme is the one we've tried to develop on anti-corruption as a kind of, as a politics um filled with kind of traps for the unwary because it seems such a kind of uh, it seems such a appealing and even kind of demo, possibly you know democratic angle to pursue um in terms of the possibility to you know tackle all sorts of popular grievances and frustration with entrenched sources of power and wealth um but anti-corruption always almost i mean almost always inevitably backfires and this is um this was the pattern of um it, in Italy in the 1990s, that the attempts to kind of steer the Italian state and the Italian Republic away from the corruption of the old parties um, backfired spectacularly and ended up with um, Berlusconi's domination of Italian politics. Um, but also the same pattern repeated in Brazil more recently, that it was um, you know, sparked off by riot, um, protests over an increase in, in prices of public transport and kind of metastasized into these enormous anti-corruption protests against the Workers' Party um, of the day, um, and that this eventually propelled um, Bolsonaro to power. So the politics of anti-corruption being uh, a deeply, very, you know, the deep, a very febrile, unstable, and ultimately cast the basis for new um, anti-political forms of um, power. Um, and to that extent, very dangerous because, um, not least because it helps to reinforce the idea, you know, if all politicians are kind of um, simply self-interested, um, venal, um, there will be no way of escaping from that conundrum because at the end of the day, you will still need some kind of uh, group of leaders in order to reorganize society. So if you start to justify power through the idea of anti-corruption, you'll end up in very kind of um, very difficult and perhaps even dark and dangerous places, as Brazil has shown. And like you say, Alex Oakley, one of our um, one of the team, he lives in Sao Paulo. And so um, anti-corruption and Bolsonaro figure prominently in the book in Brazil on the podcast more generally. I think what you say about China as embodying a very particular kind of post-politics in the kind of monolithic and that monolithic um, justification of power given for the Chinese Communist Party, and particularly in terms of national developmentalism, in which everything is subordinated to um, economic prosperity and growth, and that that has shifted perhaps somewhat under Xi Jinping is a you know it's a really interesting point. We've had recently we had a um, a guest on Isabel Weber to talk about China. Um, and particularly the fact that China escaped shock therapy that was applied to the rest of the Eastern Bloc at the end of the 1980s. Um, but it's a, it's a theme we could certainly pursue more of. Um, and as for Russia, again, kind of as providing a different kind of post-political uh, model, like you say, embodying this um, the hyper-normalized model of politics, Russia figures in the book in particularly with, I mean, I suppose the way in which we put Russia in the book or talked about it was less about Putin's... Um, 
the actual kind of modes of Putin's rule, but the way in which Russia served as a particular incarnation or the explanation for everything that had been going badly in the world since 2016. And we characterize this as part of neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, as we called it, or knobs. So the very, the kind of virulent and um, astonishing malady that seemed to, that's, well, it did, it swept across so many um, liberal commentators and even left-wing kind of commentators, analysts, pundits, politicians, um, thought leaders, intellectuals, whatever you want to say. They all were so caught up in the idea that um, it was inconceivable to imagine any change to the status quo, um, that it was difficult, you know, that they doubled down on all of their kind of hysteria and delusion. And what figured most prominently in this delusion was the idea that um, the evil mastermind and genius Vladimir Putin was in control of everything in the world, um, manipulating our websites, our Facebook ads, um, funding, you know, populist parties, controlling the Brexit vote, um, you know, giving the vote to Trump, all the unhinged kind of Russiagate conspiracy theories um, that your, I'm sure your US listeners will be familiar with were repeated with the Brexit vote in the UK um, and, you know, further afield. So Russia figures in the book in, in respect of neoliberal order breakdown syndrome of knobs, but we we didn't uh, we didn't um, go into looking at Russia's particular modes of governance um, and it's the post-political aspects of Putinism. And that's something that we um, we should definitely pick up on in future. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad you bring up this knobs term, which um, I found very useful ever since you introduced it on the podcast. Um, neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, you know, the sort of collective madness that overtook and seems to still afflict much of the pundit class um, in the sort of Anglosphere, at least. And, you know, where, it, yeah, where strangely Russia became this kind of all-purpose scapegoat um, and sort of spectral enemy that could be summed up, that could be summoned up and sort of blamed for whatever, whatever could not be, um, you know, whatever could not be admitted to be um, a, a result of the, the um, missteps or, you know, disasters caused by the, the governing class that these people support. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, uh, it's a very, um, <laughs> it's a very useful term. And, you know, I'm, I'm one thing I'm interested in going forward is to see how the how the, the syndrome continues, which I which I don't think has gone away, even with Trump out of power, um, how it continues to evolve and, and metastasize. Um, I guess one, and perhaps this is a, g- a good place to sum it up, but um, you know, perhaps a different kind of neo- of knobs, a different a different sort of variant of it, if you will. Um, it might be related to a point that you make, sort of towards the end of the book, um, about um, you sort of um, prognosticate that, and I'm quoting here. Um, I've lost my page. Um, Sorry, that the broad post neoliberal center ground will edge its way to a more state capitalist model, promoting greater public expenditure and investment, as well as an attention to the regional inequalities that have developed across advanced industrial societies in the past 30 years. And you go on um, and you suggest that essentially um, the sort of um, ruling, you know, the sort of governing class will move left economically and right on cultural issues on average. Um so th- this uh, relates to something that I recall. I, I believe you were probably the first place that 
I encountered anybody talking about this, but basically that um, that we're uh, and I think you began talking about this perhaps back in 2019 with the um, the Tory campaign, um, electoral campaign that, you know, there was already a signaling that that austerity as the sort of primary governing mode, which was heavily associated with the previous you know Tory government under David Cameron. Um, was over, right? That austerity was no longer the kind of guiding ethos of the the sort of center-right slash center-left running coalitions. And so, you know, this, um, this seems like a, a particularly remarkable and notable shift. And I think overall, people haven't really even begun to take stock of what it, what it means. Um, and I mean, to me, one thing that it, it, it ties back into our whole discussion of the demise of left populism, because in a sense, left populism never really had a meaningful... I mean, you talked about how, for example, in the US, you know, a great deal of left populism was kind of, um, you know, working at the edges of, of what was possible, um, you know, by promoting sort of, you know, relatively modest improvements in the, in the sort of um, social welfare system. And so, you know, left populism was largely, I mean, both in its more um, kind of uh, post-political horizontalist sort of occupy version, and then later in its sort of party politics version was animated almost entirely by anti-austerity. And then, Likewise, I would say, even if you turn to another region like Latin America, if you think about what motivated the rise of the pink tide, it was, again, a kind of anti-austerity politics, right? Um, that, you know, the austerity of the Washington consensus was precisely what was being rejected. And um, that entire movement was also animated by, you know, which was probably the, the first sort of successful, electorally successful sort of left populist movement of the the uh, century. And so um, if, if left populism is defined entirely in opposition to neoliberal austerity, um, what does it mean if austerity is no longer the, the order of the day? Um, And so, you know, so that's one question, but just more broadly, um, how would you define this end of austerity? What perhaps is leading to it or what, or why is austerity kind of disappearing um, when it seemed to be such a, a sort of um, built-in element of the, the sort of neoliberal regimes of the past 20, 30 years. Um, why, is it, why is it waning as, as a sort of core principle? Um, what exactly is replacing it? And then what does that mean as far as the various kinds of oppositional movements that have sprung up? Yeah, I mean, so I think we benefited... Um, which is to say the podcast benefited to a degree from two of the team, which is myself and George Shaw being based in the UK, because I think the UK was at the cutting edge of the erosion of neoliberal austerity as the kind of governing principle of um, of uh, popular politics, essentially. Um, and that was very, you know, that was very, uh, initially at least, very strongly driven by the electoral calculus of the Tory party in the 2019 election under the inspiration of um, the kind of uh, the guru of uh, Boris Johnson's vote leave campaign, which um, took the 
Britain helped to take Britain out of the European Union. And that was Dominic Cummings, who's currently kind of exiled from 10 Downing Street. Um, but he was the one who he was the one who um, tried to construct a new coalition for the Tory party by appealing to the so-called former um, the Red Wall constituencies, which is the belt of um, political of uh, parliamentary constituencies in the Midlands and the north of England, which have been Labour forever, you know, in some cases, literally, since they were formed as constituencies, in other case, for decades, um, a very long time in any case. And so, you know, they had to, they had to make public spending promises in order to win votes in these constituencies, which had been, um, which had been left behind by all the kind of investment that had, um, and public spending that had been focused on the southeast, the engine of the British economy. And so initially, at least it was driven by a very kind of pragmatic electoral calculus in Britain. But since then, you know, now you kind of you can't um, open up a newspaper, it seems to me, whether it's the Financial Times or The Economist or, I don't know, the Wall Street Journal or The Washington Post, let alone The Guardian or The New York Times, saying about how it's the end of neoliberalism, how we have, you know, state spending is back, um, how there's a new economic orthodoxy, um, how fiscal spend, you know, if done right, fiscal spending in terms of public investment can lead to growth, that we need fiscal spending to help recover from COVID, what is too much fiscal spend, I mean, all of this, you know, so it's essentially the new consensus. Um, and COVID helped to power along the, um, you know, the need to kind of um, maintain economic activity. Um during the pandemic and the lockdowns is what powered along the this shift, I think. But it was already to a degree locked in. Um, I mean, Trump had put it on the table, rhetorically at least, even if not in policy terms. Um, his uh, promises of enormous kind of public infrastructure spending, his promises to um, simply, I mean, the idea of making America great again, his presidential speech where he talked about empty factories like tombstones, and all of that was Bannonite. Interestingly, I mean, so, you know, both in the case of the Tory party and the Republicans, it was this kind of image of um, renewing public spending was very much associated with specific political advisors who are now exiled. Um, so I think COVID and the lockdown, the response, the economic response to lockdown, you know, strengthened trends that were already there that were initially at least driven by electoral calculation. Um, but also you have this, like you say, the kind of the striking paradox that the left populists and the left more broadly that have been trying to kind of um, chip away at neoliberalism for so long and neoliberal austerity for so long were not there to inherit it when it crumbled away. And so now that austerity, the idea of austerity and um, reducing public spending as the organizing principle of public life and of um, political you know, decision making, that that period is over and the left cannot benefit from it is really one of the most striking aspects of contemporary politics. And again, speaks to their inability to match vision to to their policy program. So, I mean, this was kind of, um, and I think this was the important lesson of 2019 because the Labour Party promised to spend, you know I mean? And um, even, you know, at the kind of, at the frothier end of the spectrum, you even had, say, people like Navarra Media and the fully automated luxury communism crowd who were promising asteroid mining and, you know, there was so-called broadband communism that they would roll out broadband to all the kind of poor and impoverished and rural parts of the country. Um there was be this enormous kind of vision of public spending, and yet it didn't um, 
it didn't work even and the tories have benefited from the kind of this new political consensus on greater public spending and not the left and the reason they didn't benefit was because the for the labor party because they broke their promise to observe the outcome of the 2016 brexit referendum because they committed to a second referendum effectively they had no they failed to engage the political agency of the voters to whom they were appealing um, and also, you know, if they were willing to kind of abandon any commitment to um, observing the outcomes of popular votes, then um, what commitment would there be that they would observe the other kind of grandiose promises they were making about public spending? So it was the disconnect, essentially, in the UK case between democratic a commitment to democracy and a commitment to popular government and um self-rule um, that meant that all the kind of promises of overcoming austerity came to nothing. And the left's failure to connect strongly the um, ideas of renewed public spending and overcoming austerity to ideas of um, popular self-rule and enhanced democracy is what brought them short. And I don't know if that precise pattern repeats elsewhere, um, but it wouldn't surprise me if there's a similar kind of combination at work um, in other places as well. Um, and of course, I mean, Biden, you know, the, the grand kind of promise of the Biden administration is this enormous expanded um, vision of public spending and overcoming austerity. Um, and I guess, I mean, I guess we'll see how it um, how it pans out. Um, but I think if it's the, yeah, if it's not connected to a vision of democratic transformation, then it doesn't seem to me that the left will be the natural champions or beneficiaries of um, of the end of neoliberal austerity. It's probably a good place to leave it. Um, do you have any final? Uh, so, you know, I'll again encourage people to check out the book. It is the end of the end of history out from zero books. Link in the show notes. Um, also check out the podcast. Alfe Bunga Bunga. And uh, Phil, do you have any final plugs or Final observations or thoughts? Uh, no, and just to thank you once again for having me on. I mean, um, you've it's been kind of it's been wonderful to talk through the themes of the book, and um, I appreciate I particularly appreciate you pushing me on how um, how things have evolved um, in the last few years. I mean, we finished the book just on the brink of the eruption of the COVID crisis, so a lot has happened in the interim. But I think the basic trends that we outline, I think so far they seem to have stood. Um, they seem to have stood the test of events, um, so it's been useful to um, to cast my to cast my mind's eye back on the events of the last eighteen months and to compare them as to the arguments that are put forward in the book. Um, so thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, not at all. And just um, you know, as one plug for the podcast, I mean, I I found your observations about the sort of end of austerity. Um, you know, were some of the more prescient ones uh, and, you know, particularly that they came before COVID and before the various kinds of spending that came out of the response to that. Um, you know, that, that I think that was an example of where the podcast was really um, on the pulse of things as they were evolving. So uh, I will continue to uh, listen to it for that sort of insight and oh, I hope wonderful. others will do the same. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much.